Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are coming to um, a different section of the law, the discussion of law, the explication of law here in Deuteronomy. Last week, we dealt with the national level. We dealt with the judiciary. We dealt with what it meant to build a system that ensured that there would be uh, justice and equity in society. Now we're coming to laws dealing more with the family. The, and of course, when we deal with family in the ancient Near East, we're not dealing with the nuclear family. That is a modern, if you've heard me talk before, a modern failed experiment, the nuclear family. So this is a much larger understanding of family you know, within the clan. Uh, but it comes to these laws deal with relationships. We're going to see in a minute. Um, and as as I was looking at them last night, um, I thought, I. <laughs> so it's so hard sometimes to take ourselves out of our current context and read ourselves back into um, thank you. Bibli- biblical Israel. Thank you. Um, but that's what we have to do in order to understand the law on its own terms. Because what I'm going to say might seem counterintuitive. Any of you who have read through the first part of this might might be like, ugh. Um, but these laws are actually here, the opening laws of Kitetse, uh, in order to protect women. So we have to really jump out of our context, our current context, to understand this as being... Um, protective of women and a good thing and a sign of the status of women in ancient Israel being stronger and better in some in many ways than her counterparts in other culture uh, other cultures of the ancient world and the ancient near east in particular we're not going to spend a lot of time with these laws because i want to show you uh, the the way that our tradition you hear me talk a lot about the midrash does this the kabbalistic tradition does that with this we're going to actually look at um, kind of the evolution of a pasuk, the evolution of a verse of Torah, from this to teachings that would have happened around a Hasidic table about how we're to live our lives. Okay. So let's look first at the pshat. Let's look first at the the uh, law itself at the beginning of Parshat Kitese. So somebody read uh, chapter 21, uh, verses 10 through 14. Okay, it's okay. So stop there. So the real horror of the ancient world was, of course, war. This was a regular 
part of life. It was a regular fear. That's the worst thing that could happen was that there would be a war and you would lose. Right? Who was it the absolute worst for? Women. Women. And children. children. Exactly. Has anything changed? So this is a really important question that I always have to go back to, right? Which is, you know, we tend to distance ourselves from this, and yet in many places in this world, you know, I was just talking to someone who just returned from Congo. All across the places ISIS has been recently. You don't want to be a woman in in that situation. Or a child. So... Women were incredibly vulnerable, obviously. If they were taken captive in war, absolutely the understanding was they generally became slaves. That's what you did when you captured women. You made them slaves. And in many places in the ancient world, if they were your slaves, you could do what with them? Anything. Exert your will. Okay, so which remains the case, right? Women who are vulnerable, women who don't have protection remain at, you've got the wrong book, Nicole. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, you've got my version of numbers. Um, So In in today's world, it remains true that if a woman doesn't have protection, doesn't have means, and is in a place where her own safeguards of her own community have collapsed for whatever reason, she she is vulnerable to whatever her captor decides to do with her, including sell her into worse circumstances. Okay. So it's not pleasant, but this is the reality. So... Here we get a law in Deuteronomy. When you take the field against your enemies, it's assumed there's going to be war. There's always war. In the ancient Near East, there was always war. And God delivers your enemy into your power, and you take some of them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her, and you would take her to wife. So what do we already know? You desire her, What is Torah already telling us is the understanding in ancient Israel? If you desire her. You marry her. So you can't just desire her and then do whatever you want. She's a human being. Her circumstances are dreadful. She's a human being. You may not desire her and then just do whatever you want. What shall you do? Bring her into your house And what is she going to do? She's going to trim her hair, pare her nails, and discard her captive's garb. What is this? Talk to me about this. She's going to mourn her family for 30 days before you touch her. All right? Why? Why trim her hair, pare her nails, and discard her captive's garb? What is this? Aha. See if you still desire her after all that. Shave her head. Right? Something about the nails that we don't understand, but... She won't scratch 
Um, <laughs> God forbid. Um, so that, uh, I mean, it is a mark even today of status, right? You check somebody's manicure without even being aware of it. Um, but before you go to the mikvah, don't you have to trim your nails? And you, you, yeah, and you clean, right? right? right. So, um, so possibly these are things that are designed to make her less attractive. Very nice, Sarah. It's almost like you prepare for um, a mikvah. Right. All right. So possibly it's to me. So Rashi and Abravanel um, and Rabbi Akiva agree with you that it's about making her less attractive because. If you were drawn to her because of her beauty and then you're with her, what's likely to happen to that relationship? It's not going to last. It's not likely to last. Why does Torah care? Because families were formed. And then the mother uh, who has a pagan religion will be raising a Jewish child. Not that Jewish. <laughs> All right, so we have to watch the word Jewish. We throw that around. Right. But even if even if he still desires her, she's still pagan. Either way, so you're saying Torah cares because Torah doesn't want him to marry her in the first place. Yes. Correct. So this is this is what many of the rabbis suggest is that Torah doesn't want him to marry her at all. Get over it. Change her looks so that. He won't want to marry her because it's not its not a marriage based in what Torah values believes is a strong relationship, a healthy relationship, which would be a, a relationship based on other kinds of things. Other than lust. Other than lust, yes. All right. Which, is, which I find fascinating. Like um, when I think about to our culture that we live in today, that my daughter's growing up in, you know, it's just so interesting. It's... There's so much focus on lust being the the good thing. <laughs> like that's what you want, right, is attraction and passion, and that's what it's about in, in our culture. It's, it's fascinating. It is clearly not Torah and then Jewish values, that creating a family is based on other kinds of things. Reuben? <laughs> That's right. So part of the concern in some law in the ancient Near East, her status is changed if she becomes pregnant by her captor. Outside of Israel, there are neighboring uh, cultures in the ancient world where that's what changes her status is pregnancy. But not, not according to Torah, right? So according to Torah, it's about her as a person, not her status as a pregnant woman. Yeah, Sarah? I find this line about she shall spend a month's time lamenting her parents. I find that incredibly insightful and respectful. And it's modern in some ways. It's recognizing that she's in a state of 
So Josephus and Ramban see, to your point, all of this other business, you know, shaving her hair, her nails, putting off her captive scarf. They see that as rituals of mourning, that you are to fully embrace her status as a mourner, which is about her, again, personhood, right? So she, she isn't all of a sudden a slave that you can do with whatever you want. Not only that, she has her own experiences happening. She's got her own losses, and they have to be recognized. 30 days is a period of mourning for Aaron and Moshe, right? It's, it's still Shloshim. is still our, a concept we have of a period of mourning, right? So she's to be regarded as a human being with family relations that are just as significant to her as yours are to you. Give her the rituals, the time to mourn, and respect her status as a mourner. Good. Who said something about starting over? So some of the commentators say that that this cutting of the hair, the paring of the nails, the putting off of the captive's garb is about she's now going to, her life is now going to change. So these are marks that you can't just continue to treat her as a captive. You need to to allow her, and you have to accept her changed status. So you you don't keep her in the clothes she was captured in. You know you give her kind of a you hit the reset button because she's now going to be considered a part of your family. She's now considered a part of the household, and that these are because um, hair and nails were often um, in the ancient world seen to be like the person themselves. Right, you would use them in a ritual, right? Clip somebody's hair, you know. So, because they're seen as as the actual person, so to to cut them, you know, would be some kind of reset of of personhood. Mickey, yeah, there's a, a, another thought. Um, she's uh, coming into the household of Israel, and, and uh, she's learning to honor your mother and your father. Where that may not have been a concept. So you're suggesting that mourning her mother and father goes even beyond the natural response of mourning. It's actual education in what it means to live in an Israelite society, which means you're supposed to revere your mother and father, and so you're 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 showing them respect in mourning them. Nice. Nice. <laughs> right, right, because right. this, because it's it's so much a dri- and even Torah understands it's the it's the driving factor in so many choices of men choosing women, and Torah is very clear that 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 is not the basis of a good marriage for either party, um, but particularly for the Israelite. Man, it's right, not considered a fantastic match. All right, so 14. Then, Imlo Chafatstaba, if you should not want her anymore, you must release her outright. She, if you take her to your bed and you make her your wife, and you no longer want her, 
in the ancient world, this often meant for captive women, you're done. You're done. Torah says, absolutely not. You must release her outright. It, you've changed her status in one way. It automatically changes her status in another. You can't sell her. You can't reduce her, you know, to slavery. Uh-uh. You have to set her free. This is pretty significant. Why? But in the ancient world, mm -hmm. if you had, as a woman, if you were married to somebody and then they cast you off after a month and the community knew that they had relations, isn't a woman in a precarious situation regardless? Yes. Yes. There's better and worse precarious. Oh, okay. There's worse right? and worser. There's worse and worser. Yes, exactly right. So, right, a captive woman is in a precarious position. But presumably a freed captive has the opportunity at least to explore options, right? A slave. Could they leave the community and go back to where they were? Presumably, yes. Would that... It would depend on the other society as to whether or not that would be desirable. Back. Exactly right. There was something that I was reading in my notes about that, about other community. You know, going back to the original community, I forget what it was. Um, so wh why is this a big deal for him? This is important. This Torah law that if you if you take her as your wife and then you don't desire her, you have to set her free. So it puts limits on his behavior. How is this possibly seriously limiting? So he, it limits certainly what, what he can actually do should he marry her. What kind of limits does it set before he even marries her? It ruins her as an economic opportunity for him. That is significant. Slaves are expensive. So before you make this decision, know that it's permanent. If you take her as your wife, you've lost her as an economic asset permanently. That is a serious dissuasion. He has to think very carefully about, is he ready to lose that much of an economic investment? So it's another serious deterrent, right, to him taking her as a wife. This wipes out pimpery as a Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, actually, I don't know. I mean, he could pimp her out, right? But um, it would be frowned upon for sure. But the reality is the woman alone in that community is still, you know, But it's also it's a horrifying reality, yes, of war and of the status of women in a patriarchal society. Hundred percent. Ask, ask anybody who's recently been around the world to those kinds of places. 
Not that we don't have our issues here. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Women in economically challenged situations in our country don't have a lot of options, particularly once they have children. We know that. We know, we know who's living in poverty in our country, don't we? Single women with, Single women with children. That's who's living in poverty in our country. But captive men didn't have it so great either. No. <laughs> captive men did not have it great. Indeed not. Indeed not. But, you, but um, yes. Okay. Notice Torah doesn't say anything about her husband. Ah, good, Margo. What laws are there for the one who casts her out? After oh, wait, what? Say it again. No, what, what happens to her husband after he gets rid of her, her away? If he, doesn't, if he doesn't want her and he releases her? Oh, of course. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was talking about her, her husband back home. Notice it doesn't, it just says she'll mourn her mother and father, not her husband. Well, nowhere in this is there any provision for the woman to choose. Correct. Correct. She's captive. 100%. Yes. The ancient world? Yes. So, so there's nothing there that suggests she's a wife, which for some of the rabbis, they read that to mean this is only applicable to Women who were not married. Those are the only women you have the possibility of taking to wife, are virgins. So they take them, they like kind of grab them, and then they ask them, are you married, before they continue with their captivity? There you, no, not captivity, but wife. No, he, she might, she's still a captive if she was married. He just can't marry her. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I mean, that's, it's not here. Mm-hmm. It's arguing from absence, mm-hmm. but... The rabbis notice that nowhere does it say she more it says she mourns her husband or her mother and father, but not her husband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they from a place of absence, they're assuming possibly that means the law was directed only to men that they could only marry captive women who had not been married before. Okay. Well, it also doesn't say children. Correct. Oh god, I know, right? Correct. So, however we feel uncomfortable with these texts, and it's kind of like, okay, what does this really say to me today? The rabbis have asked this question forever. So let's look at some texts from, we're going to start with the Baal Shem Tov. What does the Baal Shem Tov say? We're getting our... We're getting the beginning of our quote. When you go out to war against your enemies and Adonai, your God, delivers them into your hand and you take them captive, what is this saying? Kitetze, when you go out, Lashon Yachid, this is stated in the singular. What does that mean? It's personal. You, individual Israelite, you, what is the enemy? Every person of Israel has no greater enemy than the evil inclination. You see what, you see what the tradition does? How do we read this verse? 
enemy? Okay, that's open to interpretation. What's enemy? God forbid you should think this was only true in the ancient Near East when they were at war all the time. Torah is true for all of us all the time. How many times have you heard me say that? Torah is true for all of us all the time. There must be a deeper meaning to Oyev, to enemy. Well, of course there is. We all know the greatest enemy there is, the most powerful enemy there is, is the Yetzer Hara, is our evil inclination. We have two, right? The evil inclination and the good inclination. And should you go out to war against it? Don't read, and God conditionally delivers it into your hand. That's not what it says. Torah is making you mafticha, a promise. If you go out to war against your evil inclination, God will deliver it into your hands. You will defeat it. Below Od Ella, and that is why Torah adds, right? And take them captive. What does that mean? Take, take, if you, you're gonna win, but not only will you win, you should take it captive. You should take it into you. Take, take it inside your, your private spaces. What does that mean? You don't just beat up the Yetzir Haras as the Baal Shem Tov, rather, Look how radical this is. Not only are you going to win against the evil inclination, you're going to take it in. And you're going to use all of its powers to serve God. What, what could that possibly mean? How? The powers of the evil inclination? How can that serve God? You know the feeling of, I need that drink. I have to have it and I'll do anything to get it. Use it. Now that you've recovered, use it to empathize and be a sponsor to someone else who can call you. Because you know what that feels like. Use the very thing that pulled you into horrible awfulness. Use it for service. Beautiful example. You can do it, says the Baal Shem Tov, with anything. Greed. You're greedy? Fine. You're a mogul and you're horribly, awfully corrupt in business? Fine. Conquer that. Okay, now let's say you've recovered from that, right? How can you use greed to serve God? You know how to build an empire, American Jewish World Service. <laughs> Care. Go go get greedy for God. Go get greedy and amass a fortune to help those who don't have anything. Use it. Don't just conquer it, but take it in and use it also for the service of the divine. Were you going to say something, Sarah?
backs of laborers that yes. got didn't get paid very much and lived in squalor. It's the issue. <laughs> do, do you take share of money from the bad, from people? Do you take dirty who, money? Who got it in right. a bad way? Who required it? So, t- t- what's the, the answer to that, Amy? Our, our <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thanks, Reuben. Um, <laughs> so. In, in the Palisades? Yes. We have what? Dirty money that turned into good. Uh-huh. We have that everywhere. Right, right. But I'm just saying, so what, what's, what's your take on that act? Well, I think Jewishly, the tradition cares less about focusing on where it came from and more on what are you going to do with it. I'm not saying it's not an issue. I'm not saying it's not a complicating factor. It is. But the tradition tends towards what can we do with it? Do you know what I mean? If you have it and you have the opportunity to use it for good, I I believe, I mean, I'm sure there's four different opinions, but you know, that are going to argue against each other. Um, but, but my instinct tells me it would be what can you do with it? Milken. Well, it seems like it's part of redemption. Absolutely. There was a great debate about whether that should be allowed for him to donate to that school on condition that they use his name. And they accepted it. It came up with sterile and it was black, and then you see the way his parents wanted him. That was when he was two, and he was a black man. And they returned it. Right. And the Baal Shem Tov, frankly, is less concerned about UCLA. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tov is concerned with his Hasidim sitting at the table. We tend to beat ourselves up for our own past indiscretions or our outright acts of badness. <laughs> My language skills today are not great. Um, that, that's where we tend to go. It's where we tend to focus. And the Baal Shem Tov says the, tra- the tradition is teaching, Torah is teaching us that that's not helpful. Okay, so you're greedy. You're human. You're lustful. You're human. Use it. You have the opportunity all the time, not only to not do terrible things, but then to use those same tendencies, those talents even, those urges there's there's one rabbinic commentary that says without the gates of Harad, there'd be nothing. You'd never get married. You'd never build a house. You'd never have a career. Right? It's lust that drives you to sexual union and and creates a family. And it's envy of what somebody else has that often pushes you to work hard and develop your own. Right? So it's fine. Harness it and use it. Okay. Which one, Blanche? Yes. The dirty I really would praise UCLA for what they're doing. I think it's what we need to hold on to our values. Okay, to say no matter what the cost, we're going to... Okay. Again, the Baal Shem Tov is focusing on each one of us, right? That we should 
take even those instincts that are what we would call bad and use them in the service of the divine, 100%. So there are different levels, and where you come from matters. It's not the most important. It's interesting. Judaism says, you know what? If you give the check because you want to be the big shot, okay, write the check. We don't really care. Just write the check. I don't really care what you feel, whether you're doing it for God and for humanity, or you're doing it because you want to be a big shot and you want your name on the wall. I don't care. But the Baal Shem Tov right, is talking more about the, the ways that we get pulled off and then often use even that as an excuse for whatever, right? I'm so greedy, I'll never, or, or, or I'm so jealous, I'll never be able to, I'm so envious, I'll never be able. So he's like, stop. Torah's made you a promise. When you go to do evil against that part of yourself, not only will you win, you can take that very thing and you have a choice. It's about responsibility. You have a choice to use it for the good. Yes. It's a, it's also a matter of having a future and not being totally consumed by the evil in the past. Wonderful, Sarah. Just like our captive putting off her captive's garb, right? You have a choice. Yes, you've done terrible things. We all have, whatever. This is we're coming up on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, right? It's about the future. If you obsess about the past, it's not gonna get us anywhere. Lovely. All right. What does the Kutzka Rebbe say? Um, can I, before we go on, I know you're not going to want me to go on this tangent, but I'm just curious <laughs> what other religions say regarding this issue. Like you said, most, it could be argued, but mostly Judaism says if you turn it into good, it's fine. So what does like, Muslim, Christianity, what, what Buddhism, what do they say about these types of things? I, I mean, I don't know. That's a huge, that's a huge question. <laughs> it's, it's a huge topic. I mean, it, there's, there's, like in our tradition, there's lots of different positions, I'm sure, within each one of those traditions. I'm not as aware of what they would teach about the inner, you know, motivation for something. I, Honestly, I don't know. Shall I read this? Yes, read the Kutzka Rebbe. The Kutzka Rebbe answered this question as follows. When you attack the enemy in his land, quote, and you go forth to war against your enemies, unquote, you have a much better chance of succeeding, but if the enemy attacks you, you have to defend yourself using God's mercy as well as your own. The same is true. Never allowed an entry in the first place. It's easy to win the battle against it. However, 
All right, lovely. So this is another way that the tradition plays with the teaching. When you go out to war against your enemies, what's the Kutzka Rebbe teaching from that? Because Torah tells us when you go to war out there against your enemies, you're going to win. You're going to take it captive. It's all going to be good. What he's saying is when you go out there against the evil inclination, it's easier to win. If the evil inclination is already, if, if war attacks your country, you need God's help to win. So the assurance is if you keep bad behavior out here, it doesn't become habit. Once it's in, it's much harder to fight. So a lot of the spiritual tradition of Hasidism and of mysticism and of you know all of these that grow out of, of uh, earlier Jude- rabbinic Judaism, it's all about placing limits in the first place because it's a slippery slope, right? So placing limitations on our desires helps us practice discipline because once you start down that slippery slope, it's much harder to change. So make sure you're being vigilant about creating good habits. Yes? Well, that just reminds me of like some of the rabbis from Chabad that we meet around town, how they are just like always so incredibly kind and generous, like just inviting you to everything and it just like seems like they're in a constant battle to just get rid of any evil inclination, whatever, and just make a habit of the good as opposed to letting that evil even exist. To, or giving it a foothold. Yeah. Because once it gets a foothold, it's much harder, right? We all know this from even science is telling us, right, that it takes how, how long to develop a habit? What is it, three weeks? 28 days. 28 days, right? So... Um, and it's really hard to break it. Once you've got a habit, it's really hard to break it. And so with our behavior, it becomes habitual. I was in the, I was at the grocery store yesterday and, um, an older couple was coming up and I got to the cart that was, you know, free at Ralph's. You know, they're all the way over there or there's one sitting right there that somebody just took their stuff out. So I got to it first and this older couple was coming. So of course, you know, I said, you'll take this cart. I'll go get one of those. So I'm, he says, thank you so much. So I'm coming back with my cart and he says, as he, as we're in the store, he says, thank you. You are a very special person. And I thought, no, actually, you are the very special person, right? Because, first of all, how sad is it that he was shocked that I would give him the card that I got to first? That's just pathetic, right? That we live in a culture where an older couple would be surprised that I would give them my card. That that's another discussion for another time. But but he's the special person in my mind because what he what he's doing is he just clearly has this natural way of of uh, encouraging the behavior that we want to see in the world. And how many of us do that? We say a curt thank you and go on, right? He he took the time to to encourage that behavior, right? To say something really nice about. His experience of a small exchange that was nothing. That kind of an attitude, right? That kind of behavior, that kind of habitual behavior in the world teaches the Kutzka Rebbe, keeps cynicism, entitlement, right? All that ickiness away. So develop good, we should develop good habits so that the Yetzir Hara doesn't take hold because then it's a whole lot harder, right, to battle it. Just ask my daughter about 
me swearing. <laughs> Maybe we I have to give a quarter every to tzedakah every time I swear. And I was, she was upstairs in her room. I was downstairs in the kitchen, and all of a sudden, I hear from upstairs, "Mom, I heard that." <laughs> So it's a, right. Habits are really, even if we hate them, it's like really, really hard to break. All right. So let's look. Turn your paper over. This is a longer teaching that we don't have time to do, but I want to just go to the the kernel of the Svadimets teaching here. Back to our right. This is still our verse. When you go forth to war against your enemy, and God places the enemy in your hand, and you take it captive, in everything says the Svadimet, there is a point of divine life, but it is secret and hidden. Tzarich milchama ve'avoda kol yamot hachol limsozot hanekuda, and all the six days of the week, what is this war? War doesn't mean war. God forbid. War means this is a teaching for all time. What's the war? The war is to find the divine spark in every single thing. And six days a week, it's a milchama. It's a war for us. It's a battle for us to find the divine spark in everything. Because life is hard. Let's, let's be honest. Life is hard. But what happens? How do we know it will be delivered into our hands? Acharkach na'aseh Shabbat. Shabbat comes. And when Shabbat comes, mitgaleh ki Hashem yitbarach mechayeh hakol shezeh inyan Shabbat Kodesh. What is Shabbat really about? It's about we don't have to go to war. It's delivered into our hands. What's delivered into our hands? The understanding, the experience that the divine is at the center of all of it. When we stop all this crazy other stuff that we do and come together as community and engage in study and singing and meditation and prayer, right? When we cook for each other and we sit at each other's tables and eat, this is when we stop battling. The war is over one day out of seven. So if, so a lot of us kind of go, okay, Shabbat, I don't do Shabbat. Even... The, even the Svat Emet's teaching is true for all time, right? So, okay, so if it's not Shabbat, I'm reading this book, Overwhelmed, Work, Play, and Love When No One Has the Time. Um, <laughs> so think of Shabbat not as the day. Fine, if it doesn't work for you, it's up, fine. But where are the moments we stop battling? When do we take the time to be together purposefully, meaningfully, to eat together? To talk, to learn, to sing with a guitar, I don't care. Like, when are we taking those moments? Because those are the times where we, where we've gone to battle all, we go, we battle all the time. And those are the times where we experience victory. And once we do that, we are renewed. And our understanding that God is at the center of all of it is renewed and it changes our experience. All right. So hang on to that thought. One more. That, and there's, there's much more beautiful stuff in, in this Fatimah. It's just a gorgeous teaching, but let, let's look at Rabbi Shefa Gold. 
Someone read the first test of Kitetse. This one. I don't think you got that. I got too excited. Sorry. All right. The first test of Kitetse comes not from losing the battle, but from winning it. Ha! Very Shefa, right? Very Rabbi Shefa Gold. Our challenge, our spiritual challenge, is not when we lose, it's when we win. Why? The very first commandment of Kitetse warns us that when we win the battle and bring away the spoils of war, we will try to acquire the beautiful woman who has become our captive. We will want to own her. And when the lust and delight for new acquisition has waned, we may be tempted to sell her. The commandment of Kitetse replaces the subjugation and acquisition of the captive woman with the requirement to establish a binding relationship with her, to know her as thou rather than know her as it. To know our captive thou, we are commanded to take her into our home. Let her be stripped of all the outer trappings of seduction. Her, na- her hair and nails are cut The clothes of captivity are put aside and she must be given a month to set her own heart in order. Only after witnessing the simplified essence and subjective reality of our captive bride may we come into her and live in sanctified relationship. So Rabbi Gold asks herself, out of the much learning that she's done with masters, what is the question then? If I really take this commandment seriously... She says, the question is, what is the victory that leaves me vulnerable to the forces of my own lust and greed? What is that victory? So she's saying the danger comes when we win, when we acquire. Because sometimes in certain situations, that opens us to lust and greed and more desire for consumption. As I take this commandment upon myself, I ask, where is the pathway to holiness, right? To right relationship. She says, I grew up in a land of shopping malls surrounded by advertisements, inundated by commercials. No matter how we hide from the mainstream culture or create alternatives to the norms, consumerism is the de facto religion of the land. Though it may seem that this religion might open us to the beauty, peace, and satisfaction of acquiring and owning material wealth, in actuality, consumerism sets us at war with the material world. Because of our addictions and insatiable desires for more, we are in almost constant battle with ourselves over how much is enough. This battle affects our relationship to beauty, wealth, and the earth itself. Consumerism degrades our relationship to all we see or touch in the world because it teaches us that rather than just enjoy this beauty, we must try to acquire it, own it, and subjugate everything for our own use. We are conditioned to reach for the next thing rather than taking the time to appreciate, honor, and celebrate what is already in our hands. Ties exactly into the Svada Metz teaching. It doesn't have to be Shabbos. 
But where are we taking Shabbat seriously as enoughness? Dai. It's enough. You're smart enough. You're thin enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. <laughs> right? It's enough. You have enough. Slow down. Come into true relationship with what you have, with who you are, with the people you love. Don't try to own and subjugate it all. Just be in true, right relation. Experience the beauty of it. So you don't need to own it and control it and get more of it. The people in your house, the people in your life are, are people. Let them be themselves. You don't have to win every argument. They don't have to agree with you. That's a hard one. That's a really hard one. That's a really hard one. You're not going to win any Right? Just can you be in relationship? You don't have to own and subjugate and control everything and everybody and every situation. Just where are these moments and what are the habits that we have in place to encourage I vow relationships to the planet, to things, to time? And where are we constantly battling and, and, and at war and needing more and needing to dominate and acquire? You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.